If you're a senior executive looking to transition to boards, check out our Fast Start Guide to Board Success. In this short guide, we'll answer all of your questions about landing a paid board role and we'll share some of the rookie errors executives make when trying to climb the board ladder. Jump on our website, boardcoachinginstitute.com.au or click on the link in the show notes to access your free copy today. If you're looking for board success, let us show you how. Well, I think at its heart, negotiation is a process that's used to jointly problem solve. And one of the unique things about negotiation, of course, Sally, is that it's a process that you and I can contribute to the design of. Who's involved, where we hold it, what issues we discuss, how we frame them, the order that we sequence them, etc. So it's very different to force arbitration, mediation, litigation. There are other ways to resolve disputes and create contracts. Negotiation is quite unique in that regard because it's a process to jointly problem solve. It's one that we can design together and it's one that's voluntary to participate in. It's not forced by law. Uh, So that makes it, I think, quite special. Hi, I'm Sally Parrish, Amazon best-selling author of The Essential Field Guide for Company Directors and founder of the Board Coaching Institute. I've been in, on and around boards for over 20 years. And if you, like me, are passionate about the boardroom, then this podcast is for you. And I'd love you to join me on this mission to decode board success. What is it that sets some non-executive directors apart from the rest? How can you enhance your leadership skills so you can be highly effective in the boardroom? And what will it take to make board success a reality for you? I hope you enjoy these episodes as much as I love making them and that they unlock the secrets for you to gain a competitive advantage and have massive impact and influence in your board roles. Let's get started. Joining us today is the fabulous Wayne Harrison. He's the author of From Hope to Strategy, The Anatomy of Negotiation. Welcome, Wayne. Thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure, Sally. A great opportunity to spend some time on a life skill and a certainly a boardroom skill. I love it. Tell us a bit about yourself, Wayne. Who are you? What do you do? So I've been running a negotiation strategy consultancy, mediation consultancy for over 20 years. Prior to that, I had a corporate career in strategy and marketing. And I guess what I really do, I'm in the business of reducing people's anxiety and delivering them more predictable outcomes. And uh, how does that happen? I think so many people don't appreciate that there is a science and methodology to people who are really skilled at negotiating and resolving conflicts and being able to give them insight, being able to remove brute think and being able to walk in the shoes of the other party is often just a breakthrough they need to co-create value. It's interesting, isn't it? Because people have different opinions about negotiations. I know some people really love them, enjoy them. They make an entire career out of doing them and others are like, Oh, you know, a bit, bit reluctant, not really sure if they're offending or if, you know, if they're getting a good deal in the process and there can be some reluctance around that. But I guess it's contextual as well. You know, there are some negotiations that we can handle quite easily and some that are more complex and need more of a process. So today we're talking all about 
boardroom negotiations and the power of process. Why did you come up with that title? What can we expect today? Well, I think at its heart, negotiation is a process that's used to jointly problem solve. And one of the unique things about negotiation, of course, Sally, is that it's a process that you and I can contribute to the design of. Who's involved, where we hold it, what issues we discuss, how we frame them, the order that we sequence them, etc. So it's very different to force arbitration, mediation, litigation. There are other ways to resolve disputes and create contracts. But negotiation is quite unique in that regard because it's a process to jointly problem solve. It's one that we can design together and it's one that's voluntary to participate in. It's not forced by law. Uh, so that makes it, I think, quite special. Oh, very interesting. And it's hard, Sally. It's a process. So a skilled negotiator is not so likely to be visibly arguing and bantering over positions. You're much more likely to see a skilled negotiator negotiating the process because yeah. we understand those process choices determine the content uh, as the negotiation that we're we're managing and discussing. So at its heart, of course, what brings us together is common ground and it's got people involved. So there's a couple of other layers, but in many ways, process is the key word. And of course, uh, where you were saying about how people might feel about negotiation, many would say uh, the most dangerous negotiation is the one you don't know you're in. Oh, so I hope out of our time together, we will also raise people's awareness of when they're in a negotiation. Oh, that is fascinating. Now, I know that you've got some really great examples that we're going to walk through today, but we're going to break this down into three key concepts. And you've got some great concepts in the book, but the three concepts that we're going to focus on today is when to enter a negotiation, how to manage renegotiations, and negotiation costs. Now, these are all really, really critical to the boardroom. So let's kick off with the first example around when to enter a negotiation. What advice do you have for us around this? Well, I think from a, a board perspective, it's quite challenging to know, can I firstly control when I enter? Because if I'm now confronted with a regulator who wants to impose a penalty uh, and I want to try and have a negotiation, maybe I can't control the timing of that. If I'm uh, got a predator after me with an acquisition, it may be, again, quite difficult to control when I enter it or, uh, as we've seen with COVID, uh, supply chains that were very disruptive. I might have something forced on me as a negotiation that I've, I've got to confront here and now. Let's take, though, we're the opportunity as a board to determine when we enter it. Maybe as an example, we could use Elon Musk and Tesla. Where during COVID, the state of California required their plant to, to close as part of you know, the COVID uh, mockdowns. So clearly from Tesla's point of view, they could see Europe and China advancing very rapidly with electronic vehicles. And so they've still got a window of time to have a dominant position in the market. They're going to be motivated to get as many vehicles as they can out. 
So if you move on Musk's point of view, he really wants to keep the plant going. He's had a condition imposed on him by the government to close it. So as he entered that negotiation with the state of California, well, the first thing he does is he considers, well, what would be my alternatives to producing these in the state of California? And he considers Texas as a possible state that may give him some subsidies to, to move there. So is it viable that he could move his business to Texas, arguably you could say it could be done. But on the other hand, what would be the likelihood that the state of California could replace an electric vehicle manufacturer either from Dearborn or Detroit, uh, and certainly from China or Europe, and who's likely to go to the state of California and fill that void? Probably no one. So the first thing he does is he considers what's his alternatives and what's the other parties, in this case the state of California, what are their options? And he comes to the conclusions he's a stronger than theirs. Not a bad starting place with process for a still negotiator is to think about what's the strength of our alternatives without each other. So that's the first thing he's done. But what he does then that's quite clever is he makes it very public that he's considering if the state of California is not going to remove the lockdowns, moving the plant to Texas. What does that second process move of must do? It now causes those workers to have increased anxiety about their job security. That, of course, permeates through their families, their friends. What does that now do as voting constituents? It now creates a whole lot of constituents that are unhappy with their government. When the government's listening, when votes are involved, at least in a democracy, so the second move was to make that quite public and really unite the workers and unite the communities. The third step that he decided he'd do, this is before he's entered the negotiation, is he's then claimed that the lock it down was actually in breach of the constitution, uh, that they didn't have the legal authority to do that, and he would pursue a legal remedy to it in the courts. When he's thinking about when do I enter the negotiation with the state of California, he's thought, well, actually, they're not the first people I want to engage. The first thing I need to do is make them think that I won't engage with them at all. The second one I need to do is make them think that they'll get voted out of office because I've formed a coalition of like-minded people here. And the third one is I'll try and make it look like they're illegitimate in the action they're taking. Perhaps not surprisingly, the state of California was very keen to negotiate with Musk. And the result of it was that that plant was opened and was able to continue to produce vehicles. So I think if we bring that back to the board and we perhaps have a CEO who presents to us a potential cash flow problem because there was a supply disruption or it could be something uh, around uh, work from home. When we're confronted with a CEO as a board and it's a significant negotiation, one of the useful discussions we can have to avoid conduct risk and to avoid, I guess, an unlikely outcome is to start to explore this conversation, this like, well, how do you know this is the right time to enter? What would change? if you sequenced who was in the discussions in a different order. So I think as a board, there's a really good learning there in the must example 
to say it's very, very strategic considering how we enter, when we enter, who we enter with, how we frame what it's about. I love that. We often talk about boards needing to focus on the right problem to solve, right? Often there's a situation where X has occurred and we jump to the solution of solving it with Y. But there's often more than one ways to solve a problem. There's often more variations of the problem to solve. But I love this framework that you've got because this is the steps to solving it. So once we've decided, right, what's the right problem here to solve? The problem here is the plant, right? Where's that plant going to be? How's it going to operate? What are we going to do? When we know that that's the right problem, we then have your steps for, well, what's the right process now? What's the right sequence for solving this? And to run in and have a you know a, a head-on clash with the governing body or whoever it is that's not going to get you anywhere because their job is to uphold the rules and regulations anyway right so you've got to understand what your hand is and I love that by reordering the process or the sequencing of what you do can give you that bargaining power that you need in a negotiation as well. Is there any part of that negotiation that's kind of manipulative or, you know, having the clout that Elon Musk has and forcing that issue? Like, where's the line in a negotiation where it's about creating win-wins, creating outcomes that are mutually beneficial rather than just, I get my own way, you know, I, I seek to get my agenda met? I guess that manipulation comes down to intention. Mm. So, you know, if the intention is to satisfy the need that you've got in this negotiation, then I think that's not manipulation. I think if it's to create the illusion that you actually want to pursue a different outcome to what you really need and that it's not going to be lasting and that it's actually detrimental to you and the relationship, well, that intention is manipulation. Mm, okay, got it. So I'm looking at it sort of, yeah, from a board point of view. The learning out of that is to say in a very public pursuit where we can be exposed as directors very quickly for our lack of due diligence or, uh, you know, our lack of governance and oversight uh, over something that's high stakes, then, you know, this is a really good time to be proactive in the boardroom and say, walk me through this negotiation strategy. Yeah, what do you see the steps as being and what's the outcome of each step as we go through? You need to make sure that that conduct risk, so you can have a great strategy, but you could still be exposed to conduct risk because you're, as the board, not then seeing how that individual or individuals are then having that negotiation. So there's the structure of it and there's the behaviour at the table. And so I think also then say, have you rehearsed? Yeah. Have you already done this? And I do love how you brought the stakeholders into that example because ultimately boards are there to represent the owners of the business and doing what's best for those owners. So it's great to think about how can we sequence this so that our stakeholders have a voice in what we're doing or understand what we're facing. So I love that. So managing renegotiations, can you give us an example 
of a renegotiation that we might find ourselves in or need to do? Well, I guess COVID presents us with very many opportunities to share. One is suddenly working from home and uh, the unexpected negotiation of trying to get people back in the office from a point of view. Yeah, that is a negotiation. <laughs> yeah, and whilst that sounds a fairly operational topic, from a board's point of view where uh, I would argue culture is the foundation of the organisation, it's actually a pity shift for, for a board and a director. If work from home, we want to get them back in the office to keep the foundations of our culture strong. We could have a supply agreement. We could have a look at what's going on with many infrastructure projects now coming under the microscope to be cancelled because various state governments are questioning whether the time is right to fund those projects. So we could be a supplier and as a board, they could have a material impact on our sustainability. We may have put all our eggs into one basket wrongly. So I think a lot of renegotiations are coming up through the change in the cost of money and people focusing on treasury and debt. I think there's this whole COVID legacy that we're still trying to work through, whether that's work from home, be an example. And then you've got geopolitical events mm. occurring where we're de- deglobalizing the, the world economy and the allies are, you know, wanting to, Western allies form greater supply chain security. So, that that's be another example where you might be getting something out of, let's say, China, for example. You may have pressure put on you in the years ahead to take that out of an ally to diversify supply chains. So at least it comes pretty unexpected, I guess, is the point, Sally. Yeah, and negotiation it, by its nature. And it, you know, it happens publicly in real time as well. You know, often we find out the change to business when it's announced on TV, when all the stakeholders and shareholders are also finding out about the change that's coming down. So what's your process? What are your tips for managing renegotiations? I think the starting point is if you're on the receiving end of it, is to have a mindset of opportunity. Hmm. Because it's important that we remember when we negotiate something, we're trying to solve a problem that hasn't been solved or capitalise on an opportunity that hasn't been realised. So we then negotiate and we come up with a framework, a new paradigm to solve that problem or to realise that opportunity. And often we call that a contract. Hmm. But then we go to put it in place and key stakeholders suddenly have resigned or retired, gone on paternity leave, the regulators changed some regulation, the competitors released a new technology, the Ukraine's happened, inflation's taken off, and suddenly for one party or both, we suddenly go, well, this isn't working for me. Well, why should that be a surprise? Why should we be angry about someone coming back to renegotiate for us, we know uh, as a board and, and as a business that it's not a static environment. So what we put together in theory, we then go into implementation and we go weeks later or a year later, could even be a strategic arrangement, we could go years later, we go, well, suddenly that doesn't work for us. And I mean, the changes with coal, gas, oil, what agreements would have been put in place 10, 20 years ago? probably are under some stress now. 
yeah. the rewards. So, okay, if we accept as a mindset that this is an opportunity, we are not in a static environment, and let's consider a new solution look like, I think that's a pretty useful starting point. I think maybe the other one then is to just kind of say, well, they're also more challenging because one party's going to have a sense of loss and one's probably going to have a sense of gain. Yeah. Because we thought we had fairness where we spoiled and now we want to renegotiate it. So I think it's probably a useful place in a renegotiation that Fry and had a little bit of a discussion around if we're going to renegotiate this, what does fairness look like? Do we need a precedent we can call on? Do we have some principles we could come up with to guide us? Or maybe we've got a standard formula or a law that we could apply. So that's probably not a, a bad process is to do. Start with yourself, get your mindset right. Second one, start to recognize it's not a static environment. What we put in place is not likely to survive without change. And then I guess the other part is, well, then how do we go to the next step and make it better than it already was? And one of the golden rules is to have as many issues as you can to discuss them. Right. I mean, a skill negotiator and a skill director is not going to allow a negotiation to focus on a single issue because by its nature, if we've both got the same preference, someone has to win and someone has to lose. But on the other hand, if we could have as many issues as is possible to discuss, we will certainly recognise that on some of those issues, we hold different preferences. Yours is resources minus schedule. When you're saying issues, they're like components of the contract, right? So it's how many units, at what price, what's the service level agreements within this. So breaking it down into all those components of the negotiation. Or it could be a merger acquisition and people are focused on the multiple of EBITDA as an example and business's value. But if we then said, well, what does the earnout look like? What parts of the business are for sale? Do we want to have a license for the intellectual property so we can still get passive income? If we start to say, well, how do we break mm. this into many, many parts, we start to go, well, actually, I don't want to raise all the capital for this acquisition, but if you're saying to me for tax reasons you'd rather license the perpetuity the intellectual property that comes with this company, well, that could be a win-win. I don't have to raise the same money. You said you'd like passive income rather than one big lump sum. Well, we were starting to enable some joint problem solving that co-creates or unlocks value, and we can't do that on a single issue. So finding other ways that we can form agreement, finding other ways where we can both get things that we want from that contract as well. This is quite an emotional issue, though. You, I mean, you touched on it. A lot of contracts give value to businesses, right? Businesses are based on the, the strength of the contracts that they hold. And I should imagine that a business is fiercely protective of the contracts that they have because they take so long to win and negotiate and get into place. There must be a lot of emotion or you know, disappointment or frustration or whatever it is around that renegotiation process. And I think you alluded to this, but the parties that were present for the original negotiation 
may no longer be in the business. So they might not understand all the parameters that were in place the first time around. Yeah, and that makes it pretty challenging. I think as a board, if we take the example of a CEO who we've given a delegated level of authority to come up with a particular agreement with another party and suddenly the CEO is back at the board saying, you know, I've got some disappointing news, we have to renegotiate this. I think our challenge as a board is not to let them feel like they're losing face. Yeah. Our role as a supportive board and directors is to say, okay, so what's changed that's made that fall short for them now that we're implementing it? Did they not negotiate in good faith? And we're going to have to put contingencies in our dealings with them to protect ourselves. Or did they negotiate in good faith and the market conditions, the government regulations have changed? And how do we now still create value in a, in a new agreement and we then have to support them because if they feel like we're going to lose face with the board and the board does behave in a way that they are losing face, yeah. that's, that's not an effective board, it's not an effective executive. Yeah, and that's coming down to psychological safety and, you know, the way that we communicate and things like that. So I guess the key message there is to see the opportunity. So although there might be some initial disappointment, it's okay, so what does this enable us to put back on the table? What other things, what other needs might we get met in this process? Is there one sort of standout piece of advice that you have when there's an unexpected renegotiation? I mean, God knows we're busy enough on boards as it is without the, you know, the bombshell from the CEO. Oh, by the way, this contract is now broken what's the one piece of advice you'd have for anyone finding themselves in that position i think it's really mindset which is if this is what we're presented with and this is what we have to manage unexpectedly what is the opportunity in this and what is the process that's required to explore and hopefully realize a new opportunity because i think if we start there we're inquisitive we're humble, we're helping the executive team find their resourcefulness rather than giving them resources. So I think, you know, as a board, if we're always mindful that we're helping the executive find their resourcefulness rather than giving them resources, yeah, we're really building capability. So uh, for me, it starts with mindset, not you know, yeah. this is a terrible thing and, you know, we shouldn't have to manage this. That shouldn't have put us in this position. Well, we're now looking backwards. We're now looking to blame. Yeah. And we're now risking group think that is destructive. Yeah. Hopefully, so I love- hopefully the chair puts a, puts a stop to that pretty quick, Sally. <laughs> well, I love how it's, you know, see the opportunity, find other things that we can negotiate on in the process. But I love there how you said, you know, th- this could be an opportunity to empower the CEO and the executive. So they come in with the bad news or, you know, woe is us, this has happened. And they leave empowered thinking about, well, what are the opportunities on this? Have an opportunity to showcase their own skills and their own resourcefulness. I love that. Absolutely love that. And maybe just one other, one other really quick point to add to it is that perhaps that renegotiation is going to produce such a suboptimal outcome, we shouldn't pursue it. And in that circumstance, as a board, 
with the executive, you would be trying to design the negotiation strategy to prolong those renegotiation discussions while you created an alternative with someone else you could exercise. So you have to be quite strategic. If you really believe this isn't going to work, don't inflict more harm by walking away yes. straight away. Yeah. Then design a process that's going to protract those negotiations while you create a viable alternative. So that's really fascinating because I can see these processes running in parallel, right? So you've got the initial issue of moving through the renegotiation process and hoping to get the outcome that you want. But parallel to that, you're also running an investigation into other opportunities, other contracts that might actually end up better for you anyway, but having them as a contingency should the renegotiation not work out your experience as a director shining through selling <laughs> yeah did i it's exactly what we want to do in that example and we don't do that though we rush to solve problems right we think boards are problem solvers and, and as i said earlier we don't even solve the right problems sometimes you know this is the issue solve it this is the issue solve it and you've got that those causes and symptoms and sometimes they get a little bit blurry. Well, that probably moves us nicely into the third area, which is around the costs of the negotiation. So the, what are the negotiation costs as you see them? I think we can break them into three. I think we can say there's a, an objective criteria to measure them. And so if we think of uh, money, travel, lost profit, legal fees, hours invested, certainly a cost that can be measured with an objective criteria. I think there's one that's a little bit harder to measure, which that's called the relationship. So what costs do we incur in the relationship if they're protracted deadlocks and they're public and their trust is fragile? So I think there's a, a relationship cost that can be involved in a negotiation. And it can also be an emotional cost because it's so positive there's complacency then there's the emotional well-being, I think, which is the third cost, which is it's pretty challenging. If we look at some of the public negotiations in particular that some of the boards are exposed to now uh, and directors or their CEOs, you know, it's a very subjective area perhaps. But what is that if it's a really long negotiation, it's very public, if there is people perhaps protesting out the front of the house of the director or the CEO. You know, one that comes to mind for me was the Belgian Socialist Party leader, Paul Maganet, and he took eventually 653 days of negotiations till he became the Belgian, before he and the new Belgian Prime Minister, Alexander de Curo, if I pronounced it correctly, uh, till they formed a coalition you have to be in a negotiation to form government for 653 days. The emotional well-being and cost would be phenomenal. So I think bring that back as we move towards a close, bring that back to a board. We can say what's the objective criteria to measure the cost of running this merger and acquisition due diligence, for example. And we can say, okay, it's going to cost this much to get one of the big four in to do some prep, the data room, et cetera, et cetera. But then what's it lead to the relationship if we don't succeed in that merger or that acquisition? 
where does that lead? And then there's the emotional well-being. If some stakeholders feel it fell short of what should have been achieved, and you're absolutely burnt out because you, you know, perhaps you're the CEO and you've been doing the day-to-day running of the business, and you've had this huge body of work on top of it, and then that drags, of course, the the, the boards in. So when we're going to negotiate, let's recognise that there are costs involved, not just outcomes. Yeah, I like that because negotiation, we're, we're usually focused on the win, right? So I love how you talk about having processes, having sequences, understanding other options, taking this as a mindset opportunity to create more value or do things differently, pivot, whatever that is. But those negotiation costs that you're talking about, the emotion, the money, the relationship, the umbrella term around that, I think is reputational damage, right? We've got to be really, really careful of reputational damage because that has lasting impact. Some companies just can never recover their value after they've been through a reputational damage type exercise. So just being aware as you go through this negotiation, you know, what are the risks? You know, if we're if we're so focused on winning this one component or issue of the deal, what's the potential cost to the business of losing, of not winning? And so it's not win or lose, it's it's win or lose and the cost of losing as well. This is absolutely fascinating. And we've spoken quite high level today. I know that the work that you do with boards, with businesses is much more detailed and much more customized. It's very difficult to talk talk about situations that you've actually been involved with. But I do want to give a big shout out for your book, From Hope to Strategy, The Anatomy of Negotiation by Wayne Harrison. And you've also got a great website with a lot of resources on as well, what's the uh, website address and what resources do you have there, Wayne? So if uh, listeners would like to go to www.pathfindersdownunder.com.au, they will see a number of uh, public uh, examples of how negotiation and conflicts have occurred and been resolved. Or certainly, if they're interested in some professional development for the boards or executive teams, uh, get some insight into that. And if they're interested in our negotiation strategy uh, advisory services, they should reach out by the email uh, link that's on there and connect with me directly because uh, that's really around writing the negotiated strategies for the sorts of things we've been discussing. So I'll put that in the show notes. I'll put in a link to your LinkedIn, Wayne, so people can reach out if they'd like some help in their businesses. We'll put a link to www.pathfindersdownunder.com.au for the resources. If you want to learn more about being a negotiator or that negotiation process, do check out Wayne's fabulous resources. Wayne, thank you so much for joining us today and sharing your insights. It's been quite thought-provoking for me and I guess it will be for our listeners too thank you so much Wayne thanks Sally I hope the listeners and you stay process aware bye for now thanks very much for tuning in I'd love to know what you thought of this episode and what you took away from it I'd also love to know what topics you're interested in hearing about in the future and which experts you think should be featured on this board success podcast 
If you enjoyed listening, please share with your colleagues who might also have an interest and make sure you click to follow or subscribe to be advised of our upcoming episodes. In the meantime, if you're a leader or a successful executive and you're looking to launch your board career, or if you're an established non-executive director and you're ready for the next level, check out the resources we have available for you on the website at boardcoachinginstitute.com.au. Until next time, here's to your board success.